0: Next generator motivation. I'll begin by recognizing that we have incredible fortune to even hear the words "great compassion." That there are so many living beings in various realms of existence who don't even have the possibility to hear those words. And we not only hear great compassion but we have the chance to hear the teachings explaining how to develop it. And we have the opportunity to practice those teachings and transform our mind and make the great compassion grow in it. So this great compassion cares for all sentient beings in a very unconditional all out way really cherishing all beings seeing their potential seeing how they're trapped by their own misery and its causes and that compassion therefore is deeply committed to liberating sentient beings, and all these mysteries of cyclic existence, and so this great compassion gives rise to the altruistic intention of bodhicitta, that actually aspires for Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings, and so let's make that our motivation. Listening to the teachings. So, this text that we're going to be going through for, for during the course There's the 108 verses in Stage of Confession. It's written by, yeah. The well known Mongolian Lama, Lama Losankayan, I believe lived at the beginning of the the 20th century. And this text is one of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's favorite texts. And so I was able to receive the Long Liara transmission uh, of this text from His Holiness some years ago. Uh, He gave it during the spring teachings in Dhamsara. So this translation that I have was um, done by Jose Cabezan who is now a professor at uh, University of California at Santa Barbara. We actually got ordained uh, the same day you know, in India many years ago. Okay, so the name of the text is called uh, A Precious Crystal Rosary. And, you know, great compassion is something that's very precious. It's, uh, an erasure, a rosary usually has 108 verses, 108 beads. So this text has 108 verses. So it's kind of, um, you know, the title, the title is given in that way. Um, also, Chenezi, in the upper right arm, a crystallology you know there's to make peace. so it's uh, kind of telling us about tenresi and how to become like tenresi and so it's start, the text starts out uh, mahakaruni mahakarunikaya okay so it means homage to the great compassion um, Mahakaruna is um, also an, another name for generosity is called the Great Compassionate One. So uh, I' you know read it and make some comments um, on the meaning of different verses and it would be nice in, uh, if you could read the whole text you know uh, in advance so you have some idea of what we're going to be talking about and then in your meditation sessions after a teaching, you know, to, or in your morning meditation <coughs> session, that one hour of silent meditation we yeah. have, yeah, then to meditate on what you hear in the teachings. Because it, it becomes very strong when you hear teachings and then right away meditate on them. Yeah? It has a special kind of effect in your mind. So I, I really urge you to, to do that. Okay, so the first um, verse is The door to the path of the great beings The great seal of the Mahayana The seed of great awakening I prostrate with devotion to great compassion Okay, so the door to the path of the great beings Um, So great beings are those uh, When we talk about the three levels of beings in the long run Um, the initial level beings, the intermediate or medium level beings, and then the advanced level beings. The great beings are those who are at the advanced level. So the initial level beings are those who uh, aim for a good rebirth, Okay, because that's the most urgent thing that we need to take care of, is a good rebirth. Because without a good rebirth, forget any other spiritual progress. Okay, we have to have a rebirth in which we meet the Dharma. So that's the initial most urgent thing that we aim for. Then on top of that, we aim for liberation. That's the aim of somebody of, who is a middle-level being. Because okay? that person has really seen the faults of cyclic existence and says, enough, I've got to get out. So they aim for liberation. The advanced level being, or the great being, is the one who aims to get out of samsara, you know, psychic existence, but not for his or her own benefit. You know, they want to do it so that they will have the full compassion, the full wisdom, the full skills to be able to benefit all living beings uh, most effectively. So that person, you know, has the the aim for a good reader's, in the sense that it gives them the opportunity to keep practicing the Dharma to attain full enlightenment. They aim for uh, nirvana to get out of samsara in that they see that without getting themselves out of samsara, it's a joke to try and get anybody else out. But they don't just leave it there, getting themselves out. They really want to perfect their mind completely so that they can work uh, most effectively for the benefit of all beings. And they do this because they see other living beings as lovable, they see them as kind, and because they realize that other living beings are stuck in the same cycle of um, suffering, of dukkha, of mm-hmm. intense conditions uh, that they themselves are stuck in. Kay. So that's a great being, somebody who has that very noble aspiration for full enlightenment. Okay. So um, great compassion is also, in line to the great seal of the Mahayana. Okay. So if somebody is going to practice uh, the Mahayana path, uh, great compassion is, is its main characteristic, and so it, it is kind of like the seal of the Mahayana path. And then line three, the seed of great awakening. So great compassion is the seed that grows into the full enlightenment, okay, the enlightenment of the Buddha. And so because of all these reasons, then he's saying, I prostrate with devotion to great compassion. I find these verses very, very moving. If you think in our lives, what do we usually prostrate to? Okay. What do we usually regard with great devotion? Okay. It's what I call the, the three refuges for the worldly being. The television set, the credit card, and the refrigerator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Add on the car and the shopping center okay and so that's what we usually praise with great devotion what we prostrate to isn't it our holy credit card the source of all happiness and bliss that's how we look at it isn't it yeah great compassion oh I don't know about you have to, you know think of others and you have to think of misery and suffering Really, the credit cards is the source of all happiness and bliss. Yeah. Yeah. And we prostrate to the credit card. Mm-hmm. We prostrate to our refrigerator. It's also the source of happiness and bliss. It's one of the difficulties about going on retreat, isn't it? You don't have access to your own refrigerator. That is suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we all bring our own stash that we keep in our room. Um, we prostrate to um, the television set and now the computer. That's the source of how we can get everything that is uh, going to please us. Because now through the, the, um, the computer, you not only can buy things, but you can do online dating. And you can meet all sorts of people you never would have met anywhere else. Then, of course, you know, we take refuge in our car because sometimes we need to leave the convenience of our own home to go get something that we need or to meet somebody that we want, um, you know. So maybe four refuges. That's The telephone? or oh, the cell phone, not just the telephone, the cell phone. Because we always have to be in touch. Yeah. I mean, there's such a buzz, <laughs> literally, you know, meditating. <laughs> um, but there's such a buzz, you know, oh, there's messages for me. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's so reinforcing to the self, isn't it? Even all we get is junk mail or, you know, nonsense of the phone calls. Somebody wants me. Okay, but in to Lama tired that's not the source of happiness and that's not what he bows down to. He bows down to great compassion. Why right? Because great compassion really is the source of all uh, happiness and bliss. And I'll explain it in the text how this works, why that is so. So it's, it's good to think a little bit in our lives so of what we cherish. What we protect with devotion, yeah? and compare how our mind usually is with, you know, what our spiritual aims are, and how much do we really pay attention to our spiritual aims, or are they just kind of like another hobby that we do when we have time? Yeah, and often we don't have time, right? We have busy lives. Gotta go here, gotta go there, gotta do this, gotta do that. Very difficult to get to the Dharma Center. Very difficult to get to the meditation cushion. Very difficult to get to retreat. You know? What do we cherish in our life? What is important to us? I think this is a really important question, you know? Where do we put our mental energy? Where do we put our time? Now it came up in the discussion how we cherish our time so much, and it's easier to write out a check and give our time. Where do we put our time? I think it could be really interesting to do a, a little thing when you get home, you know, twenty-four hours, and just clock what you spend your time on. Now, how much time do you spend reading the news on the internet? How much time do you spend on email? How much time do you spend driving in the car each week? And where are you going that you need to drive in the car that much? And really write it out, because we will say, Oh, I just go to work and back. Really? You don't stop for something on the way to work and stop for something on the way back? Yeah? Where do we put our time? Where do we put our energy? So it's quite quite good to, to do, you know. Just just keep track of it, yeah. you know. Show what we're devoted to. How much time do we spend sleeping? Or if we're not sleeping, you know, kind of lying around. How much time do we spend zone out, zone out in front of the, the TV or the DVD or listening to music on our CD's? What are we to? Anyway, I'm just posing questions. You do the research. <laughs> and if you don't have time to do the research, ask yourself what you're doing. You don't have time to do the research. Okay, verse 2. The mother who gives birth to all victorious ones, the essential wealth of the conqueror's children the anonymous benefactor of all beings, may I be protected by great compassion. Okay, so great compassion is like the mother who gives birth to all the victorious ones. Victorious ones refers to the Buddhas because they're victors over all the afflictions, victors over separate existence, and victors over the cognitive observations that stain the mind. So great compassion is is like the mother that gives birth to uh, all the Buddhas because uh, without great compassion, Buddhahood wouldn't exist. It's born from great compassion. So great compassion is also the essential wealth of all the conqueror's children. Conqueror's children, those are the Bodhisattvas. The conqueror refers to the Buddha because the Buddha is conquered afflictions and all, of the, all the obscurations and bodhisattvas are called the children because just as you know um, at least in ancient times the kids would grow up and carry on the profession of their parents so the bodhisattvas are called the children of the Buddha because they grow up and carry on the work of the fully enlightened ones Okay. Um, great compassion is also the anonymous benefactor of all beings. We were talking about how, uh, it's how we have uh, a lot of um, strings attached when we give, a lot of expectations. So we, we don't like to be totally anonymous in our generosity, do we? Yeah, we often you know, like a little bit of recognition from it. But great compassion is the anonymous benefactor. Uh, It just gives without uh, need for praise or recognition or anything like that. And then it says, May I be protected by great compassion. So in thinking about that line, I was thinking that there's a couple of ways to see it. One way... Is when we take refuge in the beings who are already Buddhas or the beings who are Sangha, you know, we're taking refuge uh, in their great compassion because it's by virtue of their, their great compassion that they guide us and they teach us. And so by their teachings, they protect us. And so in that way, great, you know, we're protected by great compassion. But I think it also means. That um, the real protection in our mind is always the Dharma Refuge. Okay, and so in that way, great compassion is the real refuge, the real protection. Because when we have actualized great compassion, then we are protected from anger. Okay, the great compassion impels us to practice the path to realize emptiness. So it protects us from ignorance. It protects us from the attachment that keeps us bound in one cycle, uh, from self-rebirth after another one. So the great compassion in our own mind is a tremendous uh, protection. And just think about how much we suffer when we're angry. Okay? We suffer right on the spot when we're angry, don't we? Plus, we create a lot of negative karma. To suffer later. Plus, we often feel horrible even after we've calmed down because we've said all sorts of, you know, really cruel things to the people that we care about the most. Okay. So, if we suffer a lot from our anger, then we can see the value of great compassion because it protects us from anger. Uh, I heard a story about. One monk uh, who was imprisoned by the Chinese communists, you know, after they took over Tibet. And he was imprisoned for many, many years and, you know, beaten and tortured. And then finally he was released and he escaped to India. And uh, His Holiness likes to see the new arrivals, the people who just escaped and come to India. So well, he went to see his holiness and, you know, got to see him. And his holiness asked this nun, you know, what was the most frightening thing for you when you were in the, the communist prison? What were you most terrified of? Okay. Now think for a minute, if you had been held in, in a prison like that, what would be the thing that, that you might be most terrified of? You would have that experience. Okay. Just, just think of, you know, kind of what is most fearful to you. So, you know what that monk said was the, the scariest thing for him in his whole prison experience? He was afraid that he might lose his compassion for the prison guards. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would say oh, the scariest thing is being beaten, being tortured, being forced to denounce the people that I care about, you know, all these kinds of things, being separated from the people we care about, being humiliated. Yeah. That wasn't the worst thing that this rock went through. That wasn't the scariest thing for him. The yeah. scariest thing was losing his compassion. For the people who are torturing him, Yeah, amazing. Yeah? So his mind was protected by great compassion. Yeah? This is what it means to be protected by great compassion. You yeah. know? So his mind wasn't overwhelmed by self pity or fear or uh, resentment or vengeance. Yeah? his great compassion protected his mind and that's why he was so afraid of being separated kind from of it losing it okay verse 3 prostrating to it alone encompasses making prostrations and offerings to the victorious ones and their children I praise great compassion okay so by prostrating to Great Compassion or making off it, it has the same meaning as prostrating and making offerings to all of the Buddhas and all of the Bodhisattvas. Okay, so even though you're creating Great Compassion it, it implies tremendous reverence um, to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Why? Because Great Compassion is uh, the cause of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Okay? It's the thing that brings them about. Without great compassion, one can't generate Bodhicitta. Without generating Bodhicitta, one's not a Bodhisattva. Without being a Bodhisattva, one can't become a Buddha. Okay? So a Bodhisattva is somebody who, uh, whenever they see any living being, they Automatic response is, I want to attain full enlightenment to be able to benefit this living being. Okay? So they have that spontaneous bodhicitta, that spontaneous mind of enlightenment. That's the demarcation of somebody who's a bodhisattva. And we have that potential to do that. Okay? To make our, our first reaction to any living being. I want to become enlightened for the benefit. Now here you can see the difference between what we're going to be like when we're a Bodhisattva and what we're like now. What do we usually think when we see any loving being? Judgment. Yeah? Do I like them? Do I not like them? Can they benefit me? Are they going to harm me? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? How come they aren't like me? Okay? So instead of all that, you know, incredible mental chatter, you know, the response is, I want to become a Buddha in order to be able to benefit them. Then think about the difference of feeling in your own mind. Okay. So when, when we respond, when we look at some sentient being and with judgment, how do we feel? Are we happy? Are we miserable? Are we content? What's the feeling when we sit there, you know, and, and our mind is just forming opinion after opinion about somebody else, believing that all those opinions are true? Is that mind in a happy state? Is it experiencing pleasure? No. The judgmental mind is extremely painful, isn't it? You know, But what's so weird about it is we're putting other people down, thinking that if we put them down, then we must be good. Isn't that the weird thing about the judgmental mind? It pretends like it's looking out for us. You just criticize everybody else. They're all deficient. So the only one who's left who's good is not it's me. Yeah. And yet, our actual experience of following this judgmental mind is that we're unhappy. Yeah. It doesn't work for our own benefit. It, it actually harms us. Okay, so the judgmental mind... Uh, not only criticizes others, but it lies to us. So we have to recognize that it's not who we are. It's not part of us. And therefore, it can be eliminated. And therefore, to start letting go of that judgmental mind. How do we let go of the judgmental mind? Great compassion. Mm-hmm. Because why? Because when we have compassion for others, when we see them as kind, when we see their dukkha, their misery, then there is no wish at all inside of us to judge them and to form so many opinions about them. Why? Because our mind is just reacting with compassion, with affection. When we have compassion and affection, is the mind happy or unhappy? Yeah. It's much happier, isn't it? Yeah. Even if we see suffering, we have to see suffering to generate compassion, but still the mind can have some happiness because with compassion we know there's a way out of suffering. Yeah. Why are we sometimes uh, afraid to look at other people's suffering? Because instead of generating great compassion, we give rise to personal distress. Those two are really, really different. Because when we see somebody suffering and we fall into personal distress, that's when we get kind of queasy. Like, I can't stand to see them suffering. You know how we feel when we say, I can't stand to see them suffering? Who's the focus on? Me, I can't stand to see them suffering. Let's get rid of my pain at seeing them suffer. Okay? But with the great compassion of the Bodhisattva, even though one can see suffering, you know, and feel that suffering as if it were one's own and so is motivated to eliminate it, there's this constant feeling of optimism and hope because we know that there's a way out of it. You know, that nobody's stuck in that suffering. The suffering isn't a given. Okay. So that really changes the, the feeling tone of the whole mind. Okay, then verse 4. I praise you, great compassion, the unrivaled ultimate root, the cause and condition from which Srivakas, Pratyekabuddhas, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas are born. Okay, so this, this verse here, is um, in reference to some verses in the um, supplement to Narga uh, Treatise fundamental treatise, the, no, fundamental treatise on the Middle Way. Okay? So I share Okay? So Chandakirti, when he wrote this supplement that was unpacking Narga text, Chandakirti lived in the 7th century, Nagarjuna in the late, uh, kind of in the 2nd century. So when Chandrakirti unpacked what Nagarjuna had wrote, he um, began by praising great compassion. And he praised great compassion as the source of the Shavakas, the Prataka Buddhas, the uh, Bodhisattvas, and the Buddhas. So you're probably asking who are all these people? I don't know these Sanskrit terms. So I'll explain it to you. Um, on the path to enlightenment, okay, to full enlightenment, there's, there are two sets of obscurations. There are the afflictive obscurations and those are uh, ignorance, anger, attachment, all the afflictions and uh, the karma that is created under their power. So those are the afflictive obscurations, and those prevent us from attaining liberation, from getting ourselves out of saffic existence. Then on top of those, there's what's called the cognitive obscurations, and these are the stains of the afflictions. Okay. Um, it's kind of like the appearance of true existence, the propensity towards uh, having the, the appearance of true existence. So these cognitive obscurations, they uh, prevent uh, full enlightenment. Okay? So on the path to enlightenment, we need to eliminate both these. The afflictive obscurations, that prevent full enlightenment as well as liberation and the cognitive obscurations. Now, depending on a person's motivation, depending on how long they practice the path, how much positive potential they create, then we, d- we talk about three different vehicles of practitioners. Okay? So, the vehicle of the Shravaka, means here, Okay, somebody who hears the teachings, then the solitary realizer vehicle, and then the bodhisattva vehicle. Okay, hearers. Okay, the people who follow the hearer vehicle, they're aiming for liberation to get themselves out of cyclic existence. They, uh, they create as much positive potential as necessary to do that. I think it's over. I can't remember if it's three lives or seven lives that create uh, positive potential. They attain liberation, so they're out of Catholic existence. They don't have the bodhicitta, they don't have the full enlightenment, but they're free themselves, and it's quite a remarkable attainment and quite praiseworthy, even though it's limited, because they don't have the ability to lead others to full enlightenment. So these beings are called hearers because they hear the Buddhist teachings and practice them, and because when they attain liberation they cause others to hear about this, that fact. So, for example, in some of the early sutras we find some of the arhats, you know, declaring their spiritual attainment, that, you know, this is their last, and they say, done what needs to be done, I have my last rebirth, I'm free now. Okay, so they cause others to hear that. Sometimes these beings may also learn about the um, Mahayana teachings that lead to full enlightenment, and they may teach them, but they don't practice them themselves. So they still cause others to hear them. So they're called hearers. Okay. There's the here vehicle and they eliminate the afflictive obscurations so that attain liberation. Then the, the next vehicle up is the solitary realizer vehicle. Or those are the Sanskrit term is pratyekabuddha. Buddha. So these are beings who accumulate um, uh, positive potential, I think it's for a hundred eons remember exactly excuse me um, but you know much longer than the hearers do and they similarly eliminate the flip of obscurations and they are able to attain uh, liberation in their last rebirth at a time when there isn't a, a teacher around when there isn't a, a wheel turning Buddha who is giving teachings so they're called solitary in, in that sense, that you know, they can uh, attain enlightenment at a time when there's no Buddha appearing on the earth. On the earth. Okay. Some of them are called um, solitary, in they're called rhinoceros-like practitioners, because I guess Rhinocer- rhinoceroses, and not I like to go off and be alone so these practitioners uh, you know that's one type of solitary realizer likes to be alone in the forest and they teach only by hand gestures so they're called solitary realizers then the bodhisattvas, okay they accumulate posture potential for three countless gradients okay so much much longer time and they eliminate not only the afflictive obscurations, okay, that keep them bound in psychic resistance, but also the cognitive obscurations, the subtle stains on the mind. And so they attain full enlightenment. And with that comes so many abilities to be of benefit. Because even when you, uh, attain the path of seeing on the Bodhisattva path, even at that point, you can make many emanations, you know, to benefit sentient beings. Okay. So wouldn't that be nice, I mean, if you really have great compassion for others and want to be able to benefit them? If you only have one body, I mean, you can only do one thing at a time. The bodhisattvas, the high bodhisattvas, the Arya bodhisattvas, they really know how to multitask. <laughs> okay? Because they can make many emanations that go throughout the universe to benefit sentient beings. And then the Buddhas can make even more emanations. Buddha can, you know, if the Buddha has, a particular Buddha has karma with a particular sentient being, then effortlessly, spontaneously, an emanation appears in whatever form is needed to be able to benefit that sentient so we can see that the people who follow the Bodhisattva vehicle, they have much more ability to really um, benefit sentient beings. Okay. So, um, in this verse where it says, I praise you, great compassion, the unrivaled ultimate root, the cause and condition from which the Shavakas, Pratyekabuddhas, and Bodhisattvas are born okay so that like I said before that verse is actually referring to Chandrakirti's verse in his supplement of Maginita Hattara and I'll read you um, the verses the verse that it's referring to here okay it's actually the first verse in his text and he says here's and middle realizes the suchness Middling Realizes the Suchness and Solitary Realizes there. Okay, so hearers and Middling Realizes the Suchness are born from the king of subduers. In other words, are born from the Buddhas. Buddhas are born from Bodhisattvas. The mind of compassion, non-dual understanding, and the altruistic mind of enlightenment are the causes of the children of conquerors. Okay? So what Tenresi what is talking about here? Okay, The hearers and the solitary realizers, all those beings who are out of a existence, they are born from the king of subduers, the Buddha. Okay, Buddha is called the king of subduers because he's, uh, the, the Buddhas are the chief of those who have subdued the negativities, who have subdued the afflictions. Okay, How are the, these Arhats, the here Arhats and, and Solitary Realizer Arhats born from the Buddhists? Because the Buddha gives them teachings. The Buddha talks about the path and then they practice it. Okay? So they're born from the Buddhists in the sense that without the Buddha teaching them, they wouldn't gain any of their spiritual realizations. Okay? Now... So the solitary realisation and the hearers, those arhats, depend on the Buddha. Okay. They're born from the Buddha. Then the Buddhas are born from Bodhisattvas. Okay. How are Buddhas born from Bodhisattvas? Because before becoming a Buddha, somebody has to be a Bodhisattva. Okay. So in, in our path to enlightenment, first we become a Bodhisattva because we have that strong intent. Intention for full enlightenment, then we practice hard over three countless gradients and attain full enlightenment. So we go from being a bodhisattva to being a Buddha. So that's what it's meant when we say Buddhas are born from bodhisattvas. Okay? Now where do bodhisattvas come from? Chandra Kirti says, they come from the mind of compassion, non dual understanding, and the altruistic mind of enlightenment. Okay. So those are the causes of the children of the conquerors, the bodhisattvas. Okay. Now, somebody might say, okay, well, but to become a bodhisattva, we need this altruistic mind of enlightenment. So how can you say it's a cause of a bodhisattva? It, because causes always have to come before results. Are you getting a question I'm asking here? Mm -hmm. Okay. So how can can bodhicitta be a cause of becoming a bodhisattva if you don't have it until you're already a bodhisattva? So Chandrakirti explains here that it's talking about bodhicitta when we practice it with effort. Okay. So it's not the spontaneous bodhicitta that is the cause. Of bodhisattvas, because you only have that spontaneous bodhicitta when you become one. But it's all of our bodhicitta practice that we're doing beforehand. Okay, so you know, in the long run, the two methods for practicing bodhicitta, the seven-point instruction of uh, causes and results, and equalizing and exchanging self with others. So all of that kind of practice, you know, becomes a cause to become a bodhisattva. Somebody might also ask, because it's said here in the verse, that non-dual understanding, okay, that means uh, a realization of emptiness, okay, realization of non-duality, of emptiness. Well, the bodhisattvas don't get that until further along on the path. So how can you say that's a cause of being a bodhisattva? Well, again, Shanta Kheriti, or actually it's Jay Rivers, it's on commentary here. He's the one who explains it. He says that there, it's not talking about that, the direct realization of emptiness that this is the cause of the Bodhisattva, but again, our training in, in emptiness, our training in wisdom before we actually enter the Bodhisattva path. Okay? But compassion is definitely a cause of the Bodhisattva because it ha- definitely is very clear it happens before one becomes a Bodhisattva. So they actually say, well, maybe this is the next source let's see. Well, they say that, that actually compassion is the thing is the principal cause of the Bodhisattva. Because even though they list compassion, the non-dual understanding, and bodhicitta as the causes of the bodhisattva, without great compassion, there's no uh, impetus to generate altruism. Okay, so you can't have the bodhicitta without having great compassion. Similarly, it's it's great compassion that gives a practitioner the you know a lot of energy on the Mayan path to meditate on emptiness. So the stronger, you're, if you're following the the path, the stronger your great compassion, the more you're going to really want to meditate on emptiness because you, you understand that emptiness is what, the, that realization is what you need to eliminate all the afflictions from your mind stream. And that is what enables you to reach the in Buddhahood. Which is what you want, because then you can really be of the greatest benefit to beings. You following me? Okay, so that's how great, great compassion, you know, is like the root of the whole thing. Okay, so that's I'll read that verse from chapter two again. Here's a middle, middle and realizer set of suchness are born from the king of subduers. Okay, because the Buddhists give those the beings only here in solitary realized path the teachings. Buddhas are born from bodhisattvas because to become a bodhisattva, to become a Buddha, you have to be a bodhisattva. The mind of compassion, non-dual understanding, and the altruistic mind of enlightenment are the causes of the choking of the conqueror. So those are the causes of the bodhisattva. Okay. So I think this is also instructing us that if we want to become a bodhisattva, this is what we need to cultivate, great compassion, non-dual understanding, and the altruistic mind of enlightenment, the bodhicitta. Okay. So in other words, if we want to become a Buddha, it doesn't say sit here and pray to become a Buddha. Yeah. And I say this because His Holiness Dalai Lama emphasizes this again and again and again and again that we have to create the causes for goodness. We have to create the causes for the spiritual results that we want. That just sitting and praying for them to happen is not sufficient. And I think His Holiness emphasizes this because there's such a tendency in our minds to... You know, see somebody who, who has more spiritual qualities than us and just worship them and think that by worshiping them, that's all we need to do. This is kind of the mind that we find in theistic religions, isn't it? You know, you just worship God and that's all you need to do. And as Holiness is just saying, uh-uh, yeah, it's not just worship. We have to actually cultivate these qualities within ourselves. We have to make an effort to hear the teachings, to think about them, and to put them into practice repeatedly, earnestly, sincerely. Okay. And I think, um, I just think that His Holiness tremendous compassion in giving us that advice. Hmm? Yeah. He could have said, oh, just um, offer a lot of pujas, you know, have the Tibetan monks give a lot of money to the Tibetan monks and have them do pujas for you? That's good enough. You know, somebody could say that. Now, yeah, are all these ceremonies. Yeah, Westerners love them. You know, you bring bells, you bring drums, there's trumpets, short trumpets, long trumpets, deep chanting, you know. There's hats and there's brocade. And you don't understand any of it. So it must really be holy. <laughs> you know? The less we understand, the holier it is. Right? Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, uh, you know, it's holy say yeah, just, you know, all money, has the Tibetan monks and the nuns. Uh, you know, do some poojas. And they'll just pray for your long life and your, your liberation. And then, you know, you can sleep your happy life in America. Go to the shopping center. Go to the mall. You know, hang out. Do whatever you want. Let the monks pray for you. That's all you need to do. Okay? This holiness didn't say that. Now, why not? Because he really has compassion for us. Yeah. and so he's telling us the truth which is we need to do the work yeah. he's not giving us some um, some uh, glitzy shortcut that doesn't work that leads to a dead end he's actually caring about us and saying look this is the work that you need to do if you want to become enlightened so I think that's you know, he gives us that advice and tremendous kindness I heard, I wasn't at these particular teachings, but some of you may have been. They were in Los Angeles a number of years ago. You were there. Um, when uh, His Holiness, uh, no, somebody, there was a question from the audience that said, um, it was asking His Holiness, what's the quickest way to enlightenment? Okay. So the person that asked the question was kind of thinking you know let me just you know get enlightened quickly get that done with and then I can do the rest of my life <laughs> okay um so this person expressed the quickest path and blotment, and his whole started to weep he started to cry yeah and he said this is one of the um, biggest difficulties the Westerners have on the path is they want everything to be quick and easy. And then he told the story about Milarepa, who uh, was one of the, the great Tibetan sages. And when Milarepa left his guru, uh, Marpa, no, actually, he left his guru, Marpa and he went and he meditated. And then one of his disciples uh, I forget if it was Ritimpa or another disciple. But anyway, one of his disciples was leaving him, Malarepa. And uh, as the his farewell present, Malarepa, who only wore this one white cloth in the cold mountains of Tibet, he lifted his cloth and showed his uh, disciple all the calluses on his tush. Okay, because his buttocks were completely filled with calluses from sitting so long. Yeah, just sitting and sitting and sitting, and really doing the practice. Mm-hmm. And that was his farewell present to his disciple, who was about to go off to attain enlightenment <coughs> by meditating. Really indicating, look, there's a lot of hard work, you know, and your twist should look like this at the end of it. Um. So, you know, His Holiness told that story to all the people and said, you know, you really have to have an earnest uh, effort and really sustain it over a long period of time. And then you get the result. But if you're wanting something really quick, kind of glitzy enlightenment, quick, cheap, and easy, or if it's not cheap, at least quick and easy. Yeah. Uh, but that just doesn't work, doesn't hold water, doesn't bring any result. How do they get off on that pattern? But anyway, what it's really emphasizing here is uh, you know, the importance of cultivating these attitudes over time and how mm-hmm. the root is really the great compassion. Okay, then verse 5. I praise you, great compassion, who are important at the beginning like a seed. I think who is important at the beginning like a seed. In the interim, like water, and at the end, like the fruit, in obtaining the excellent harvest of the victorious ones. Okay? So this is referring also to another verse in Chandra Kirti's text. Okay. So Chandra Kirti's uh, supplement to the middle way. So verse two uh, in Chandra Kirti is mercy alone. Mercy, it's I think it's the Tibetan terms of over here. Yeah. So that mercy here is a, a synonym for uh, compassion. Okay. So mercy alone is seen as the seed of a conqueror's rich harvest, as water for development, and as ripening in a state of long enjoyment. Therefore, at the start, I praise compassion. So the reason, you know, you may wonder why I might explain Chanda Kirti if the text is by Lama, Lama Lohsang Thayet, it's because uh, he's referring to Chandra Kirti's text, and Chandra Kirti's text is, one of the main ones that is studied in the um, in the monasteries. It's a really really important text because it explains the whole bodhisattva path. And Geshe uh, Sonam, one of my teachers, who uh, he gives summer courses all summer. He spent five years teaching us. Yes, five summers teaching. Us. So those of you who were wondering where I ran off to uh, in the previous summers, it was to hear this text. Okay, so so uh, mercy or compassion is the seed of a conqueror's with harvest. So what it means is that the great compassion is um, important at the beginning of the path. It's the seed of the path. Because great compassion gets us going. Okay? If we have great compassion, then we have interest in really practicing the Mahayana path. It, great compassion is also the water for, you know, uh, making the seed grow. Yeah, it's the water for the development. Because... Um, the... The great compassion nourishes us while we're on the path. You know, when you're on the path, you have to do all sorts of different practices. I mean, three countless great eons. You have a lot of work to do with those. Okay, so there's a lot to do in there. What is it that keeps you going on the path? It's the great compassion. Yeah. So we might generate, you know, the bodhicitta, the altruistic intention, but we have to keep meditating on compassion so that our bodhicitta doesn't degenerate. Okay. So great compassion is not only the seed that gets us going on the Mahayana path, but it is also the water that, keep, that nourishes us and keeps us going so that our, we don't lose our bodhicitta. Okay? It is... Um, also, it ripens in uh, a state of long enjoyment. Okay, so that means uh, enlightenment. Yeah, the enjoyment of a buddhi, uh, of a Buddha, the um, the enjoyment body of a Buddha that is, is able to, you know, teach the, the various bodhisattvas. So that the result of, um, you compassion is important at the resultant stage also because as a Buddha, it's because of great compassion that a Buddha acts. Okay? So the rich harvest, all the, the, the qualities of a fully enlightened being, you know, give, come from uh, great compassion acting as the seed, are nourished by great compassion in the middle acting as water, and... Uh, great compassion is part of the harvest, this resultant ripening state uh, of long enjoyment that, that comes about from practicing the path. Uh, because, you know, one becomes a Buddha to be able to best benefit others. And again, as a Buddha, it's the great compassion that makes the Buddha create all these manifestations and, and uh, do so much to be able to benefit us. I think. So Chanda Kirti is really emphasizing here how important uh, great compassion is at the beginning, middle, and end of the path. And so that is what uh, our text here is referring to when it said, I praise you, great compassion, who who is important at the beginning, like a seed in the interim, like water and at the end, like the fruit, in obtaining the excellent harvest of the victorious ones. Okay? So, you know, as we're going back and forth between these two texts, you get some idea of how um, the traditional teachings go, that somebody who's writing a text here, you know, uh, Lama Lohsan um, Kaya, he's not just making up his own stuff, yeah, but he's referring back to Chandrakirti, who is one of the pillars of the tradition. Chandrakirti isn't making up his own stuff. He's giving an, uh, an explanation of Nagarjuna's text. Okay. Nagarjuna isn't making up his own stuff. He's trying to expand the teachings of the Buddha on emptiness. Okay, So it's, it's really, you know, by teaching it in this way, you get some idea about how important it is, um, the tradition, how important it is, and how uh, important it is to really rely on these great figures in the tradition, you know, these people who actually attained uh, the result of the path. And so who are valid explicators of the path. Yeah. A lot of us who write books, we just, you know, have our own ideas. Oh, sounds good, might nice. as well write a book. Yeah. But, uh, you can see that this text is not written with that kind of mind. Okay, verse 6. I praise your great compassion whose defining characteristic is the desire to protect all aged mother-sentient beings from the subtle and gross fears of existence and pacification. So this is actually referring to a verse in Shanti Deva's text Guides the Bodhisattva's Way of Life which I will bring with me tomorrow. I didn't bring it today. But... uh, together in his text referred to the a very similar thing about how great compassion uh, is what protects us from the fears or the dangers of existence and pacification. Okay, so let me explain those two terms and what their dangers are. So existence here in this context, it means psychic existence. Okay? It's referring to being our mind being bound by ignorance, anger, clinging, attachment, karma, and going around and around taking one rebirth after another, after another, after another. So when we meditate deeply on the disadvantages of cyclic existence, some fear comes of it. Okay? It's not the panic, freaked out fear. It's not like, oh but it's like, you know, whoa, this is no joking matter. You know, this is serious stuff. I've been spacing out my, you know, enjoying the psychic insistence, thinking everything's kind of hunky-dory. But actually, when I look seriously at the situation, it's, it's pretty serious business. Yeah. And if I don't take care, I'm going to continue you know, to take one rebirth after another rebirth after another rebirth and they may not all be in the human realm our, our realm is considered a very fortunate realm because we have enough uh, well-being to practice the Dharma but just enough suffering to remind us that we need to practice it if we're born in realms of intense suffering uh, which are far worse than Dharma. Or Somalia or Iraq or whatever, you know, um, far worse than New Orleans after the, the hurricane, then, you know, then we really have some concern about continuing on in, in this cycle of existence because it doesn't go anywhere except more and more misery. Okay? So that's the dangers of existence. Great compassion uh, helps us see the dangers of existence and want to liberate all of our aged uh, mother-sentient beings. So that's referring to the fact that all sentient beings have been our mothers in, in uh, previous lives. Okay. So like when you, when you see old ladies, you want to help them, don't you? Yeah? Well, all sentient beings are like our old mothers. Even if they're in young bodies, yeah. they're like old mothers. So we want to, to help them with that same compassion. Mm-hmm. Then pacification, that refers to um, nirvana, okay? Because nirvana is free of the afflictive obscurations that cause rebirth in chest existence, okay? So it's pacified. But, it's very easy to get stuck in an arhats nirvana in the sense that, you know, if you have this motivation to get yourself out of cyclic existence, you do it, you work hard, yeah, you realize emptiness, eliminate your own afflictive obscurations, you've got nirvana, and then what you do is you spend eons in this incredible blissful meditation, yeah? Because you're, you're free of cyclic existence now. You have a very subtle body called the mental body. And you're just in your meditative echo on emptiness. You just did it. Okay? And um, and it's a wonderful attainment. You know, we should really respect the beings who are our house. But they're, they're unable, uh, after they go into you know, our hot like this, after they leave their body, they're unable to actively benefit others because, you know, they're just stuck in the bliss of liberation. And so it's said that at some point the Buddha comes along and kind of wakes them up and says, you know, there's all these sentient beings and they need your help. And at that point, then the Arhat has to go back and start the Mahayana path from the beginning and create, you know, create the three countless great eons of positive potential and do all those practices. So that's why it's said that if you can start from the Mahayana path at the beginning, do that. Yeah? Because even though it may take longer to get yourself out of cyclic existence, at least you don't, you're not going to kind of get yourself out <coughs> and then spend a lot of time in, you know, in your meditative echo voice and then have to start the Bodhisattva path at the beginning. Okay? So they say that because in the end, for the benefit of all living beings, the quicker we can attain full enlightenment, the better it is for everybody. Okay? So that's what we're encouraged to go on Mahayana from the beginning. Okay? So, it says, I praise you, Great Compassion, whose defining characteristic is the desire to protect all aged mother sentient beings from the subtle and gross fears of existence and pacification. Okay? So the Great Compassion is what gives um, a worldly being the impetus to get out of cyclic existence and into the Mahayana path. And it's what gives an arhat who is abiding in pacification the impetus to join the Bodhisattva path and the Mahayana path. Okay? So he's praising great compassion in, in, in that context as well. Okay.